Welcome to Noble Warrior. My name is CK Lin. Noble Warrior is where I interview entrepreneurs about their multi-dimensional journeys such that you can go out and engineer your life with more depth, impact, and meaning. If you have any friends who could use more inspiration and permission to take that leap of faith to pursue their life of meaning, impact, and purpose, go on and share this episode with them. They'll thank you for it. My guest is Orpheus Black. Orpheus is the author of The Enzo, A Philosophy of Submission. He has been an educator of 25 years with several titles in the BDSM and King community. His work has been featured in Mashable.com, Playboy, Marie Claire, and Ebony. Many today look to him as the coach of coaches when it comes to healthy sexuality and enlightenment. We talked about how sex is everywhere the difference between wants and needs, the difference between embarrassment and shame. And we also did an exercise to distinguish the four quadrants of sex, social indoctrination, your own self-expression, your shadow, and your perception. We also talked about the common blocks and fears to sexuality and his own transformation to becoming more fearless. And if you're a leader, listen to our discussion about causing transformation. We talked about the four components of sacred rituals, space, time, place, and sacrifice, and how to use them creatively to bring more significance into your relationships. We also had a discussion about healthy and unhealthy cycles of desire and contentment and how to avoid being hungry ghosts. We also talked about his rituals to cultivate the capacity to be seen and to receive. And finally, we talked about purpose-driven sexuality versus libido-driven sexuality. Please enjoy my conversation with Orpheus Black. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. This is going to be wonderful. I already feel the energy. Mm. So let me just start off by saying when I ask my friends about this idea of multidimensional masculine, conscious masculine, your name came up. You got to talk to Orpheus Black. You got to talk to John Wineland. They're really excited to, that we are having a conversation together. So I want to drop right into this idea of sexuality is a space that's really fraught with a lot of mm, negative charges, any misconceptions. So could you share with us why this is your path? How did you get into this space in the first place? I have always, since a young person, had a uh, propensity for dealing with intimate situations. I always knew that I wanted to work in this field. There was no point in time where I, as a child, I, as a teenager, didn't want to do some type of work in this space. And to me, moving into the space of kink, fetish, sexuality, intimacy, masculinity, it all just pulled me in from many different ways. From being a performer in BDSM, to doing porn, to being a sex worker, to doing phone sex. I've done every aspect of sexuality as a business up until this point. And for me, at no point in time was it ever work. It was mm -hmm. always my calling, always my life purpose. And I've just sat back and enjoyed the experience and just let it take me in the directions that I'm needed and required. 
So that's a very beautiful articulation to to that. However, I'm going to challenge you a bit on that because <laughs> sexuality is a little bit, you know, like I was saying earlier, it's fraught with like judgment and negative perceptions and you do what, you know, like societal type external pressure. So I'm, I was curious, was it as clean as the way you phrase it? Like I knew what I want to do. doesn't matter what everyone else says. I'm just going to keep going forth or did you have to grapple with, is this my path? Is it not my path? You know what I mean? To be honest, I've never, I have never had to grapple, but the mm. people that I've been with have had to grapple with it. My being out, my being available, my not unabashed approach to sex, sexuality, intimacy has always been there, but it has been a problem for partners, friends, business connections. And so what I understand is that expressing yourself in any way, shape, form, or fashion is difficult. And it's going, that path is going to be filled with obstacles. But as the Buddhists say, the obstacle is the path. Helping people get over their issues with my sexuality, helping people see me as an example of a person who is expressing every aspect of themselves 100% is a part of the development. Right. So every time I meet resistance in this area, I realize it's not my sexuality that they're having a problem with. It's their own. Mm. I mirror reflecting something that they want to have, want to be, want to express, but for some reason feel that they can't. So in the process of enlightening them and taking that stress off of their shoulders and putting it on me, making it my burden, I give them freedom and space to be able to imagine themselves living in a way that's congruent with their deepest desires. Mm. Does that make sense? I'm just recalling, as you're speaking, I'm recalling back to my younger days. I didn't understand mm. this. I came from a Chinese culture, a culture that we don't talk about this quote unquote taboo subject. It's within the husband and wife or whatever the partner status, you just don't talk about it. So as such, giving the unfamiliarity with it, I had my own preconceived notions and judgments and prejudices towards even just the topic itself, not to mention the people who are working, you know, in this, whether you're a teacher or a worker, it doesn't matter what it is. So until I have well, hopefully a little bit more mature to really look at sexuality, hey, it's the most primal reality. <laughs> <laughs> so without it, the human species would not continue. So exactly. Let's talk about it. You know, if you, the way noble warrior, the way I talk about anything is, hey, anything that's worth mastering, let's talk about it. So that way we can understand and discuss the nuance of it as a path to mastery, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. Sex is an energy form that permeates every aspect of our life, whether we think about it as just a way of reproducing the human species, but also there is a sexual energy that goes into creativity. There is a sexual space that goes into production. There is a sexual energy that goes into reproduction. There is an energy to produce and reproduce that goes into everything, and it all comes from expression. Your creativity comes from expression, so your sexuality comes from expression. All of these things are interconnected. The idea that there is a lifeline or a linear modality to life is ridiculous. We're a series of interconnected, interwoven areas of existence that 
are contingent on each other. And like we were saying, talking about before, to me, life is a spider web where everything is interconnected and we sit at the center managing each and every area because it's all equally important. If you pull on one side of a spider web, you feel the pressure on the other side. Right. You pull on the other one, it puts pressure on the other side. And our lives are very much the same way. Sex is interconnected to every aspect of our life. Does that make sense? It does. And I, I love that you brought up the spider web metaphor because the last time we talked, you brought that up. I was like, let's really talk about that. And we had discussed it's important to release pressure by maintaining healthy tension because mm -hmm. a spider web without tension, it collapses. Correct. And then, but with a lot of pressure, it pulls all other aspects of life into this. So I love that part of the ethos of what you are advocating for your clients is you advocate for them to articulate who they are and what they want and what they need. Programs from the ballroom to the bedrooms, a clever name, by the way. I love it. But before we go into the more spiritual aspect of it, mm -hmm. I want to. I want us to talk more on the practical application of what you talked about, essentially advocating for who they are, what they want and what they need. You had made a distinction between want and need. Can you get a little bit, go a little bit more into that? What's the difference between want and need? Yeah. Uh, need is the essential components of life, the things that you absolutely cannot do without. They are not a carte. They are not on the side. I equate the needs to the engine in the car. You don't go in there and see that the engine is optional. It is required in order for it to be a thing. So we as human beings require love, care, affection, compassion, tenderness, patience. Those are necessities that we require in an intimate relationship, right? Want is the optional. It's the extra, it's the cherry on top, right? Wants can be things that people choose by choice to provide for you. And it can be a specific sexual act or a specific type of intimacy, but it can't forego the need. What I find when I give my clients the uh, desire diary is that people ask for their needs as if it's a want. Mm. It's, do you think that you could provide me with affection? No, you're supposed to have affection. Do you think you could be a little more patient with me? Stop asking for patience as if it's a want. It is not. You need it, right? You need healthy food to feel fed. You don't need popcorn. You don't need candy. Those are extras, right? So you can't ask for the nutritional value of a relationship, the healthy components as if it's optional. It's not. So what I always ask people to do is this. I want from you because mm -hmm. I need you to take ownership of your want. I need you to take, to assign that to an individual and then I need you to give them the why, because the why has the meaning. Mm. Tell them what it means to you, right? Now, there's an area of vulnerability in the why, but sometimes vulnerability is necessary 
Sometimes vulnerability is appreciated. Sometimes it softens us in a way that makes us much more approachable. And a person wants to go into a place of deeper introspection and see if they can provide that for you. To me, that is absolutely important. The first part, the I want, is the ownership of our desires. Without owning our desires become sublimated. They start sneaking out and manifesting in other ways that are not intentional, not in control. So we have to own our want. And then we have to assign it to a person. Because there's many things that we want, but we don't want them from everyone. Mm. I may want to kiss this person and not want to kiss that person. I may want to be held by this individual and not held by that individual, right? Assign your want to an individual. Make it user-specific. Tailor it to that individual so that they are more inclined to not only provide it for you, but to give it to you in a way that embodies them where they can see themselves deep within the role and bring themselves to it and actually take it to a dimension that you may never have expected. Right. Yeah. So that process is deeply important to me. Yeah. I, I really love the practical sentence structure. I want this because mm -hmm. now you're, empowering your clients or our listeners here to own their desire and right. give them a very actionable step that they can take on. So I have a question for you though. When you're in that subjective experience, want and need feel kind of the same. So can you help me delineate just a little bit more about what in the subjective experience, what is the difference between want and need? Because in my mind, the way I would distinguish it is I need something just because I need it. There's no rationale behind it per se. That's a way to help you know me simplify it in my brain. So I was curious mm -hmm. if you can help me delineate the two. I think most people conflate the two because they're afraid that somebody's not going to want to give them what they need. You see how I use that, that sentence? They don't want, we're afraid that someone doesn't want to give us what we need. And so we don't ask for it. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Out of sheer fear, we conflate the two. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, you, you need and it's very hard to hear someone reject you around something so essential to your existence, which is a need. It is essential to your existence. Mm. Right. There's there's no conflating that, you know. Now, again, we all want to want what we need and need what we want. OK, that's that's a play on words. But. You need water, mm -hmm. love, right? You need healthy food. You need a healthy relationship. You look at the needs, look at the quintessential nature of these things. I want candy. I want kisses. I want, you know, soda. <laughs> you know, I, I, I want to go on a date, okay? Wants, needs are very different. But again, we conflate the two because we have an inherent fear that someone's not going to want to provide us with what we need. Okay. So in the design journal, do you also ask them to write down, what am I afraid of others judging me for my desires or needs? Anything oh, yeah. 
Oh yeah, we definitely do that. And and for me, it's really important to get people in connected to, uh, or let's say reconnected to an external source of need. And so I also have them look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? So when you go into that space and you're looking at that Maslow, you can see it section almost stratified from best and most important up to the highest. And so that can serve as a template for them to start talking about their needs. Mm-hmm. That conversation is very important. Then we go into the sentence structure of I want. Then we start talking about the difference between shame and embarrassment. What is the difference? <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked. Thank you, sir. <laughs> this is going to be very complicated. And I have it's it's much better when we write it out. Okay. Sure. But the first thing to realize is that embarrassment is an internal process that gets externalized and shame is an external happening that gets internalized. So what does this mean? Let me give you an example. Embarrassment works like this. Oh my God, if they find out I would just die. If anybody know, oh my God, feeling, right? It starts in here and it changes my behavior because I'm hiding something that I don't want you to know about because I think if you find out you're going to have negative feelings about me. Yes. It starts in. So that's embarrassment. That's embarrassment. Okay. Shame starts on the outside. Shame says, you know, if you do that, people are going to think you're this. If you talk, act, speak, behave in a way that is counter to your enculturation, counter to your social indoctrination, counter to my feelings, I, and you're going to assume this negative le- uh, label, right? So many women experience, oh, well, if you do that, you are a, can we use language on here? Okay. You're a whore or a slut or you're this, right? And so let's say you don't do it when you're 15, 16, 17, but now you're 22. Now you've done it and now you start thinking negatively about yourself. An external happening is internalized and changes your behavior. Got it. So if let me see if I can recap my understanding of it, okay? Sure. So is, is, uh, sh- uh, shame is outside in. Yes. Embarrassment is inside out. Correct. That's the way I would articulate it. Correct. Correct. That is correct. Awesome. Huh. I love that. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Now, now, I can be more precise <laughs> with my language. Now, thank you. There you go. You know, Soren Kierkegaard talked about this long before anybody else when he did labeling theory. It was a. It's a really overlooked aspect of it because when you look at people who do labeling theory, they say no behavior, no a thing is inherently wrong, right? Where we get wrong and right depends on what the cultural information is, what the cultural norms are, what the religious norms are, right? They are the ones that put right and wrong onto things, acts, behaviors, right? And then it's up to the indoctrinated to enforce it, right? And so they impress upon you these societal standards and these societal norms, right? And so that pushing, that force penetrates our psyche and can 
change our behavior. And we, in fact, become the instrument of torture onto ourselves. We are taught to punish ourselves for behavior that is not inherently wrong, right? So once I kind of shake this idea, right, shake up the nest, we start going into this idea of what have you been told is wrong or negative or bad versus what do you believe is negative, wrong or bad? Right. And so that's another part of the desire, uh, desire diary that we go into. Yeah. There's a lot of different rabbit holes we can go into. Let me first affirm for me <laughs> in terms of my, you know, my own uh, emotional mastery, understanding and an ability to put words to how it is that I feel is a learned skill. Mm -hmm. So the more I study it, the more I you know, putting the effort to understand the nuance and, you know, the difference between embarrassment and shame. I'm like, oh, thank you. Now I can be more precise into it, right? So now I have more colors on my palette to articulate what's going on internally. So I love that you're encouraging people to develop a richer nuance in their <laughs> desires and wants and needs and all that stuff. Yeah. Bravo. Awesome. Thank you. But I also hear this word being uh, used a lot, kink, because in my mind, kink is something that's outside of the norm. But if behaviors are arbitrarily neutral, why do you still use that word kink if, you know, that's part of who you are? So maybe if you can help me understand and define what that word means for you. So that way it can help understand the context of how that word's being used. Kink. What is the definition of kink? Thank you. Thank you for asking that. Kink is any deviation from what you think is normal sexual behavior. Any deviation from what you think is normal sexual behavior. Why is that important? because you, at some point in time in your life, developed an, a notion that of normalcy, normality around a primal behavior. You're saying, instead of expressing myself normally, right, in what's in line with my wants, needs, and desires, there is a template that I'm supposed to play through. I'm supposed to do all the hits, right? <laughs> but then, Right. As you start growing out of that and starting to express yourself more, you're like, OK, what's in line with my tastes? My tastes and social convention aren't always in line. And so then we have deviated. That is a kink. I see. No matter what it is. Right. And so I do this exercise. Would you like to do an exercise with me? You would need a pencil and paper. And anybody at home would have to have a pencil and paper, too. Would you like to try Let's do it. Let's do it. What I want you to do is take a pencil and paper and with the pencil, draw straight down the middle of the page, north to south. Mm -hmm. And then I'd like you to do another one in half no, east to west. So you'll have four quadrants. Mm. In the upper left-hand corner, I want you to write down three things that you think is normal sexual behavior. Just take a couple minutes and just write down as many things as you can think of, but at least three.
I wish we had the Jeopardy music playing in the background to fill in that. Yeah, song. yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> and if you want, I can I can go find it. Okay. <laughs> All right. In the upper right-hand corner, what I'd like you to do is write down what you do, what you do that is not in line with normal sexual behavior. Right? And you don't have to read any of this out. Just be as honest as humanly possible. At least three things. I know this is a long list for you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So in the lower left-hand corner, I want you to write what you fantasize about or want to do that you are already, that you have not already done. This is for the people at home as well. Once you've written down what you want or want to experience again or fantasize about, I want you to write in the lower right-hand corner why you are not engaging in this behavior. Why are you not engaging? And for those of you who can't figure out what you want, Think of the reason why you have blockages around it. What's preventing you from even dreaming about the thing that you would want to have with someone you love, enjoy, respect, admire, adore, feel comfortable with? This is enlightening. Thank you. Right. So now let's let's label these quadrants. Watch. Mm. Okay. The first one is your social indoctrination. It's the thing that you don't even question. It's behavior that you've been told everyone does and that's normal, right? That's your indoctrination. The next category is your self-expression as you understand it. It's your presentation. It's what you're comfortable with saying about yourself. This Mm -hmm. is what I like to do. This is what I engage in and I'm okay with sharing it. The lower left-hand quadrant is your shadow. Hmm. It's the incorporated aspects of your sexuality, of your wants, your needs, your desires, right? What's more important is sex is the way with which we satiate our desires and our partner's desires. Oftentimes, if we don't know what we want in that quadrant, it's because we've been We usually live our lives for someone else. We're looking to satiate their desires and replace it with our own. We take from other people and bring it into the space. I want what my wife wants. I want what my husband wants. And so I don't even dream about what I want because no one's ever asked me. Mm. Never said, what do you want? They didn't give you room to dream, Mm. right? When we go into this next space, these are the perceptions that we are facing that we think are impediments to what we want. They're the excuses as to why we can't dream. The excuses as to why we can't long crave hunger. And so for me, this is the main category that I work on, overcoming those obstacles. Mm. And that's important. That is the first step in the journey that we go into when we're working, when I'm doing this type of work. Thank you for that. 
So let me ask you this question because you have a program called from the boardroom to the bedroom. Like I said, clever, love that. So from the people that you work with, what are some of the common barriers that you see? Some common, you know, like I said, <clears throat> you know, I'm kind of drawing blanks here, right? But to your point earlier, what is what is the blockage? I don't know. So what what are give us some examples of those common themes that you've seen? especially the high performers, the alpha, whatever you call them, right? The people who was really, really good at a domain in their life, athletes or business or whatever. And over here, they have a little bit of a blockage. What are some of the common blockage? The most, the one that I get the most is fear. Mm. And it doesn't matter, like fear, insert fear. It doesn't matter what it is. They feel that that fear is something to be feared. And it's, you, it's things like, well, I don't want to be looked at as abnormal. I don't want to be misjudged. I don't, I'm scared that someone's going to think that I am a freak, uh, a pervert, a, a deviant, right? Um, or that this is going, a fear that this is, my desires will change the relationship that I'm having with my wife or my husband. Or, and this is mostly with regards to female-bodied individuals, a fear that they will be locked into that position forever in perpetuity. It won't be something that just happens in the bedroom. It'll be taken outside of and used against them or relegates them to a very specific position. Mm. So those are, fear is the main one. And again, as you know, fear is not to be feared. Um, the next one is just a lack of experience and exposure. Most people can't see themselves or haven't seen representation of people like them doing the thing that they want to do. And so they repress it. Right. Mm. A lot of people in King didn't really see people of color doing what it is that we do in, like, say, BDSM or fetish until I started going on camera and doing it and doing it at clubs and doing an environment. I used to get email all the time and say, I didn't know that other people did this. Mm. And so, or people like me did this, right? Or I didn't know men did this, or I didn't know women did this. They didn't see representation. And so they didn't know that this was available to them. So they need to have the exposure, you know, and usually represented by somebody who looks like them in order to see themselves in it, to be able to imagine themselves in that space. So that's another one. And I would say the third one, <clears throat> so we don't go too deep into it. The third one is sh just shame. People have been told by their religions, by their families, so on and so forth, that you shouldn't do this, right? And for me, again, the way shame works is we are going to label you as a subject matter and or activity and void out everything that you are. If you mm -hmm. label me, you negate me. That's what Soren Kierkegaard says. And when you label a person as a whore, harlot, slut, um, in other negative words that I'm not going to say, you reduce them to an act. You dehumanize them in that way. Mm -hmm. You're saying you are a sexual activity. Never mind that your mother or your father or your brother or your Valor Victorian or all these other things, we're going to reduce you to an act, right? And so people do not want to be reduced. And so some of that reduces some of the play that they can do, some of the exploration that they can do. It hinders them, right? Because even in a relationship where you're man and wife, 
or your committed fiance, or you've been in a long-term relationship, we still fear this idea that our partner may shame us. Mm. The person we sleep next to will start treating me differently, acting differently, because I want this type of play, it's because I want this type of engagement, because it takes me into a different place, a different headspace, where it gets me in contact with my primal, mm. right? And so that's a very important thing too. So those are the top three that I would say. Thank you for that. So let me just recap real quick. Number one is fear. Number two is unfamiliarity of someone that looks like me. Number three was... Shame. Shame. Thank you for that. <laughs> and um, yeah, one of, one of my recent epiphany is this. If you want to be more anti-fragile, if you want to be more courageous, if you want to be more fearless, the barrier to that is your relationship to embarrassment or shame. Yes. The more you can lean into that, the more fearless, the more courageous you shall yeah. be. Right. Inside and outside. That's kind of the what I'm hearing, what I'm deducing. How? What, what do you think? You agree, disagree? What do you think? I do agree 100%. And this plays out not only in the bedroom, but in the boardroom as well. Because how many people are uh, labeled a hard ass or a, a, a bitch or, a, you know, difficult to work with because they expressed themselves? Because they had an opinion that was differing from the culture uh, that they're dealing with. So for me, we all want to try and create our presentation, right? Your presentation is literally what you are comfortable with presenting of yourself in that environment. That's your presentation. When you deviate from your presentation, you can be labeled negatively now, right? When your presentation is not congruent with the area that you're working with, the thoughts, the ideas, the culture, you are now a deviant because you've gone away you're not towing the party line. And it happens in the bedroom. And it happens in the boardroom. It happens in the office. It happens in the home. Right? It happens in our political sphere. It happens in our social sphere. Right? Deviation exists in every aspect of our life. And while your expression is unique to you, the way we will punish you is very rehearsed. The way we will punish you is very uniform. It's very swift. And it's so focused that you will pick it up and we won't even know. And then one day that punishment will emerge for a very specific behavior. It'll remind you to shut up, toe the party line, be exactly where you need to be, exactly who we need you to be. So for me, shame in this way is very important to understand. But we can't let it limit ourselves. It's the people who deviate from the norm that really inspire a country, that leads us into the future, that keeps us going. It's the people who see what's not there and take the time to not only express it, but make it, build it, create it, define it, that really takes us into that new space. We can't just be seven of nine. We have to be the unique one. Mm. I love that.
I mean, that's one of the reasons why I created this podcast in the first place. I want to talk to the people in the fringes, right? I want to talk to people who is really passionate and obsessed about really interesting kinks or interesting things that nobody else know about. To me, my uh, relationship with normal and kink or fringe interest is totally shifted. Or mm. raised Chinese, right? You you know, toe the party line, like you follow mm-hmm. tradition, right? Now, I'm more about innovation, so I'm interested in like, oh, what are you doing? What's going on over there? Let me let me check it out. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yes. So, thank you for that. You also had said a line that I really really like. You said kink is rooted in faith, not trust. That is correct. So I wrote that down. So say a little bit more about that line. Yeah, one of the mistakes is that faith that um let me try this again. One of the mistakes that people make is that uh kink is rooted in trust. It's not, it's rooted in faith. Faith is the belief in the absence of proof. Belief in the absence of proof. And for me, it's important because I don't know that you're not going to hurt me. I don't know that you're not going to violate my trust. I don't know that you're going to lie to me. When I, when we first meet, I know nothing, but I want to believe. I have faith. I want to invest in you. I want this to work. It's literally the investment that we make in the relationship, not necessarily in others, but in the thing we're creating, Right? And so we have to look into those spaces because it's an often overlooked aspect. Our want to make this work. My want to date this person. I want to believe she's beautiful on the inside and on the outside. I want to believe that she has integrity. I want to believe, but I have no proof, right? So faith is really important to how we build a relationship. We experience the same thing when we have new business partners or when we take on new investors, right? You have to go into it with a certain amount of faith, okay? So then what is trust? Trust is my level of comfort with an established pattern of behavior, okay? I need consistency in order to feel comfortable. And the more comfortable I feel, the more open I become. Mm. Right. We can say more, do more, be more because my environment is safe and consistent. Mm. Right. So for me, that's developed over a period of time. It's not about earning it. It's about showing up, being unabashedly you, because I can depend on you being that. When we meet most people, what we're meeting is their representative. We're not meeting. Can you pause for one second? Because what you just said, in my mind, is earning it. But you just said it's not about earning it. So it it doesn't compute for me. Can you say that one more time? Earning is an exchange. Oh, I see. It's not transactional. Exactly. It's Uh, not transactional at uh, all. Right? You just be you. I'm around you. And the more you are you, and I can see the consistency, I can see the, you know, summer, spring, fall, summer, spring, fall, summer, spring, fall the more comfortable I can become. But what we do most of the time when we go out on, let's say a first date, we're being our best selves, knowing that this is not maintainable. This is not sustainable. You can't be that person 
all the time. You're not going to, that's not going to last. It's going to be inconsistent. You have to be you when you show up, right? When you go, I used to be a salesman. And the one thing that I knew is to not put on your best face. Be you, make mistakes. If you stutter, stutter. If you stammer, stammer. Put that in there. If they buy from you, right? They're buying from you. They like you, not the representative, right? It's important to make sure that you make these correlations between you being on your best behavior and you behaving. Mm. Yeah, no, this is really great. You might just very do a quick detour about your own journey to be this thought leader. Like, how did you lean into who you are, lean into your own quote unquote weaknesses and transmute that into your strength, lean into your interest, your passion in sexuality? Like, just do a little detour about how did you own your voice? Was there an inflection point mm -hmm. where you started to own your voice? Um, Orpheus Black, this is who I am, God damn it. And I'm going to walk this path. <laughs> that is, that is a very, I've never been asked that question before. Um, so I'm going to do the best to express it because I don't have a rehearsed line for it. Let's <laughs> go. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's many different voices, and I had to own all of them. You know, there's the business voice and who you are and how you show up. And there's the sexual intimate voice and the relationship voice. And I had to own it. There is the familial working with your kids, you know, that voice and owning it. So I had to go across the board and do it. But I had the benefit of being able to be a salesman. Being a salesman is psychology one-on-one, right? And for me, that was the most important thing because it got me over my fears really quick, mm. right? My first sales job, I was in a telemarketing room selling toner ink, right? To people who didn't know me, didn't want it, wasn't expecting it. And the guy said, sit down, answer the phone, give me five no's. I want you five rejections and I want you to write them down and I want you to come back in my office, right? And so I was like, yeah, I can do that. Five rejections. I mean, they're going to reject me. I can get you 20, right? And then I went in his office, said, I got five rejections. He said, how do you feel? I said, I feel fine. He said, now go get me one sale, right? He made the goals obtainable. He made me not fear rejection mm. because every day I had to bring him five no's mm. and one sale, five no's, one sale. And he said, this is life. He said, you're going to get more rejection than you're going to get acceptance. You're going to get more pushback than you're going to get acquiescence, right? Mm -hmm. This is life. Go live on the phone. And I did that. And I took that same modality in every aspect of my life. So when I came out like kinky, I was like, yeah, I'm going to meet five people. I'm going to tell them I'm kinky and they're going to go away. And I'm like, I need five no's to get one yes. I right? love that. <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that part of the curriculum? It is yeah. part of the curriculum. It is. Okay, so it is. I'll tell your partner your kink, and then your partner is going to tell you no intentionally and purposefully so yeah. then you get used to the rejection. So you can hear it, mm. right? Because I think it also 
when you go into that intentional no space, I can also say, thank you for protecting yourself. Mm. You know what I mean? Thank you for taking care of you. It gives me a few ways to appreciate them. And so I can make sure that they also hear, uh, make sure that they understand that they're heard and mm. respect. Because a lot of people say no, just to make sure that you can hear the no, accept the no, and you're not going to shame them for their no. Mm. Does that make sense? It does. So, so we go into space and I can say, ask for anything, anything not can actually connected deeply. You know what I mean? Not connected because we're just practicing hearing no. Does that make right. sense? It does. I mean, it's the dojo, right? You, you turn your bedroom into the dojo, a la Noble Warrior. We love dojo. <laughs> Let's do this. Yeah. I love exactly. that. Yeah. So exactly. So hearing no for me was really important. You know, it's important building. I know other people have whole philosophies around this, but for me, it's the it's really getting used to it, feeling it, letting it wash over you, and then creating a pathway with which you use grace and compassion and dignity and appreciation to say, I heard you. I accept what you said. There's no judgment. In fact, I'd like to congratulate you for being able to use your no, yeah. for being able to express your no. And it's okay to say no to me, right? Mm. So that for me is really important. I, I really love the tone, the way of being that you hold when you do the communication. It's mm. mutual respect, one spiritual being to another spiritual being versus Right. In my mind, like one person overpowering the other person, that's like it's, it's it doesn't do anything for me. So if you if you don't mind going to this space, what is the difference between force and power mm. in the way that you, you you practice, you teach your clients to practice in the sacred space that is the bedroom? Mm. Force. Force is a non-consensual immersion of an act of nature, right? Uh, it's non-consensual, it's, it's pushing, it's uh, overriding, it's overwhelming, that's force, and it's not consensual. <clears throat> even if it arises from a natural place, even if it comes with good intention, it's not consensual. Power, on the other hand, is the ability to influence something in a way that is beneficial to you, you using your power, your influence to be able to produce an outcome that is beneficial to you. Now, just like force, it can be used negatively. It can be used positively. Right. And so what I help people do is become a conduit by which power moves through you. Yes, you have the ability to influence your partner. But do we want to do that at the moment or do we want to provide them with an opportunity, a choice that empowers them? Give them the opportunity to say, do you want to participate in this thing with me? Yes or no. Right. That's power. The ability to use your voice to make a choice. Right. So taking my influence out of it. Not using force, providing them with an opportunity. And then allowing them to make a choice and not penalizing them for their choice. That's the process. Mm, I love that. Now, 
since you've worked with a lot of people, do you see different stages of development? You know, again, bring back the martial art example, right? The yellow belt, orange belt, the red belt, the black belt. Like what for you, have you observed or learned different stages of development in the sacred space that's the bedroom? The thing that I learned the most is that people develop in the areas that they want to develop in first. And then they develop in the areas that they need to develop in second. Right? Because everybody has a trauma that they want to deal with or a potential trauma that they want to deal with. Right? When I used to do uh, Sierra Club, uh, basically what they would talk about is being a first responder up there. Right? And this is how it often works. Let's say a guy's mountain climbing, he falls, he breaks his legs, but he also cracks his head open. And I, I go over there and say, let me deal with your head because that's most important. The guy goes, no, it's not my head. Stay away from my head. It's my leg. Stay away from my head. It's my leg. What are you doing? Right? Mm -hmm. He doesn't have awareness around this other thing. He's only aware of this. And so what they say is deal with the problem that he's aware of first and then get consent to treat his other injury because sometimes we have a deeper insight into what's wrong and they don't, right? So it's really important for me to deal with what they think is the problem first and then ask them if they, it would be okay if we look in this other area yeah. and take care of them in this way, right? And so I deal with their want first and then their need second. Got it. So you meet them where they're at, what their desires are first. Mm -hmm. Then as a coach, as a guy, as a Sherpa, then you point yeah. out like, hey, have you considered, right? Mm -hmm. in, the way, in the way that only Orpheus can do. Okay, mm -hmm. got it. Let me give you a story because what we're dealing with is a person's perception of a problem, mm -hmm. right? And so I had, a, I had a partner and she had an issue that she couldn't see, but I could. And so I walked her into the bathroom. I said, look in the mirror. What do you see? She says, she sees her eyes, her nose, her mouth, and her hair. I said, can you see the back of your head? And she said, no. And I said, well, you have to understand that there's a part of you that I can see that you can't. And I'll do the best I can to describe it to you, to talk to you about it, and to try and work with you and your feelings about it, right? But you have to allow me to see you entirely and recognize that I'm trying to see you entirely. Your perception of yourself and my vision of you are different. So help me help you. And a lot of times I have to have that conversation with a client because I come with an outside perspective. I can see the back and they can't, you know? And so what I look for are the telltale signs of the problem or the avoidance, right? Because we have to remember that avoidance, running, uh, shutting down, uh, escaping, are all part of our reflex. It's all part of our fight, flight, or freeze mechanism. It just manifests instead of running away from a tiger, we're running away from the argument. Same pro process, right? We're running away from a conversation. We're running away from an ideal or a concept. All of it's the same thing. Or we're resisting, fighting, right? Fight, flight, or freeze. But maybe you're going, I'm not having this. I'm not taking this. Big, loud voices right? Puffing up really big, you know, like a cobra and, you know, 
doing this thing to intimidate. That's all part of the fight. It's all mm. part of the resistance. And so as I see the resistance, as I see the, the flee, the avoidance, as I see the freezing and the shutting down, I understand that we're in an area that is sensitive, mm. that's sacred, that's raw, that needs healing. And so I wait until we've dealt with what they think the issue is. And then I ask if it's okay if we talk about this. Mm. Does that make sense? It does. I really appreciate the way that you talk about it. And so in my mind, how I reinterpret the way that you say this is as you, as you address their desire and then you point out to them their blind spots. Correct. And then you are working with them to free them up, up from the negative charges that they may hold onto or anchor, you know, or be feel trapped about. And then as a way, as a path to be more liberated, be more free. Right. And really sexually specifically, but everywhere else in life in general. Exactly. Because everywhere else is suffering from the same thing because it's all connected. Right. And again, to, to look at um, Chael Sonnen, the, the fighter, he has this model that he uses and he says, um, when you put pressure, creates stress and stress creates fatigue. Right. And so this thing that's pressuring us, we're trying to alleviate and we alleviate it with one of three natural inclinations to fight it away. To run from it. Right. Or just to shut down and just freeze into it. Right. These are natural instincts and it's OK. It's got us, you know, a million years has got us to this point. Right. But we have to look at every aspect. Because it all saying the same thing. I need to get this painful discomfort, whatever it is, off of me. And the longer it stays, the more stressed I become and the more tired I become. And we all know that we don't make the best decisions when we're tired, right? When we're exhausted, when we can't take anymore, we make rash decisions. So my job is to help you, A, support, feel where that pressure is. I'll help support you in getting it until you can push it off of you. Right. right. Then we can start working on the stress. And once the stress is relieved, then we can start finding peace. We can start mm -hmm. resting. We can start recharging. We can start dealing with the things that we need to do so that we don't put that same pressure or at least to that same existent, uh, uh, to that same extent on us. And then we also create protocols for dealing with stress. And then we create um, time for us to heal, meditation time, introspective time, uh, vacation time to deal, to recharge and go back into that space. Mm, I love that. So we talked a little bit about the before. Can you mm -hmm. share with us a little bit, either your personal story or client's story about the after? Mm describe it for us you know because this is in my mind again this is sacred work you know yeah. tap into a space of freedom tap into space of liberation yeah. and and to the the most primal space you know the animal the animalistic self right that the primal space so you know get into the somatic you go inward and to be able to articulate uh, to myself and then to another, 
that this, these are my wants and needs, sacred work. So describe for us what is the after. Can, when you say the after, I'm sorry, I just want to make sure I understand. Transformation, sure. right, before and after. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The, the transformation that I see the most is this awareness of self. It's like, I didn't know I needed that is the thing that I hear the most. I didn't know I wanted that is the next thing that I hear. Most people don't dream. Most people have never been asked, what do you want? What can I provide for you? How can I help you? They get so stuck in this, I have to do it myself, right? They are non-consensual individualists is how I like to think about it. Wait, wait. Um, there was a <laughs> lot of syllables. Say that again, non-consensual <laughs> individualists. What does that mean? Yeah. Meaning... They're, they're collectivists at heart. They want to be in families. They want to be in groups. They want to be in relationship to another person. And through a non-consensual happening, they wind up forced individualists. Maybe it's a breach of trust, and so they don't trust someone anymore. And so they, I'll do it myself. I don't need anyone. I don't need a man. I don't need a wife. I don't need a partner. I don't need this. I can do it myself. I can take care of me. But they really don't want to. Right. They want to have rely on another person. They want to be cared for. They want to be tender, uh, tender with somebody. Right. Um, in Kenya, they have a proverb that says only another person can scratch your back. Mm. Right? It's, and it's important to know that. And yes, some people are completely self-sufficient, completely happy with it. Great. But for most of us. We want to be in relation to another. We want to be in relationship with other people. We want to create healthy, sustainable, maintainable dynamics that are mutually beneficial and rewarding, right? And so a lot of people say, I didn't know that I needed someone for that. I didn't want to need someone for that. I didn't want to rely on someone. And now I want to make that change. I want to make that investment. I want to know what a healthy relationship feels like. Right? Because most of the ones that we have are toxic. Right? It's the same thing in business. Most people have worked in more toxic environments than they have in good ones, productive ones. Most entrepreneurs are entrepreneurs because they don't want to work for somebody else. Because those environments are not conducive to them being who they are. I know that's how it works for me. I'm smiling because it works for me. <laughs> right. How did you know? Yeah. <laughs> Psychic. Right. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, having a safe space to not only work, but thrive right? To, to express yourself, to be able to interview the people you want to interview, work with the people you want to work with and do and live the life that you want to is the reason that we free ourselves up. We should still have that same energy, that same ideal and that same modality when it comes to a relationship, right? So I have a test on my website that is what is your dominant archetype, meaning what is your leadership archetype? Doesn't matter whether it's in the boardroom, doesn't matter whether it's in the bedroom, you take the test and it helps you understand the archetype that emerges most often from within you, right? And, and what are the different archetypes, by the way? I was going to give you that. <laughs> the four major archetypes are father, 
magician, um, director, and king, mm. right? These are the ones that you're going to see the most. As a as an entrepreneur, you know that you have to direct and guide people. You have to tell them what they do. You have to delegate. That's just the way it is. Even if you're delegating to yourself, even if you're self-managing, self-leading, you have to delegate. That's important. But it's also important to know that there's a certain fathering that has to happen. Mm -hmm. Right? I have to help people develop the skills that I need in order for them to be both sex successful here and for me to be successful out there. So there's some fathering that needs to happen, right? But also the vision. If you don't have a vision for what's out there, for what you want to build, for how it's going to come to fruition and the right people to be in the, these spaces, nothing happens. What I find is, <clears throat> sorry, what I find is, is that most people don't have a vision for their relationship. You have a five-year plan for your business, but not a five-year plan for your family, mm -hmm. right? You have a five-year plan for <clears throat> investment, but not the emotional investment. You know where to put the capital, but don't know where to put the love and attention and time, right? You have to have vision. So the same thing that grows a beautiful, successful, thriving business are the same skills that you need to put into a thriving, beautiful relationship, right? Because all business is relationships, right? Mm. All relationships have a power dynamic, just like every business relationship has a power dynamic. We have to make uh, agreements that are explicit and not just implicit. We're very explicit with the relationships that we have in our businesses. You're my secretary, you're my CEO, you're, and we've defined it and we have this thing, but we don't go into our relationships with the same explicit agreement, right? So at, the risk, at the risk of TMI, I'm going to say this. Uh, I do dream of having very explicit descriptions and because in my mind, that's communication, right? So by making the implicit explicit, hey, here's even just something as simple as household responsibilities. You're responsible yeah. this area, I'm responsible for that area. So that way there's no, I thought you were gonna do this, but you didn't do this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of this communication happening. I've been accused, that's way too business-y. No. <laughs> but in my mind, it makes sense, you know? So I'm curious that's to know your thoughts. <laughs> well, this, is, this, this would be, if you were taking that test, I would guess that you would be high on the director. Because the director is very organized, very principled, you know, wants to make sure everything is clear, transparent, you know, and everybody's working in uh, congruency. You know, I'm holding up my end, you're holding up your end. That's yeah. great. But, and, and that's and that's going to be an avenue, but it can't be the bulk of your archetypes that emerge. Mm -hmm. You have to say, well, you know what? My partner is not used to this, so I have to father them. Mm -hmm. I have to use this kindness, love, compassion and help them develop the skills that are necessary to be able to take on these roles, right? Because just because they're old enough to consent to be in a relationship doesn't mean that they're mature enough to do it successfully. And so sometimes we have to be a part of the maturing process. Mm -hmm. So we have to come in there and allow that father uh, archetype to emerge, right? Again, people come and work for you and I have to nurture, there's a nurturing time, a nurturing period to get them up to speed, to get them into a place where they can be beneficial to me, right? Mm -hmm. And so we can't, as directors, 
just leave that part out. We have to cultivate that as well. Does that make sense? Yes. <laughs> Orpheus, I appreciate that. Good coaching. <laughs> I'm working. On it. <laughs> All right. I, I, wait, wait. I gotta say yeah. this. I gotta say yeah. this. I have a a unique insight as an American into Eastern culture because mm. I have been raised with Asian philosophy. And I just love Chinese culture. I love Japanese culture. I love Indian culture. It's my speciality, right? And so one of the things that's really important for me is acknowledging that people have traditions, right? And they have ways of being that are deeply rooted in who they are. And they can't just be picked out and overlooked. Taking those traditions, working with those traditions and seeing how they can be beneficial to making a healthy, long lasting relationship really helps a lot of people feel empowered because, like you said, it's like, no, I'm very detail oriented. You know, what I mean, it's like it's important to have both the love and the structure. It's important to have both. Whereas in America, we're like love, no structure. Mm -hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? Which is tradition. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It, that is tradition. So for me, taking your strengths, taking your cultural narrative, taking your cultural inheritance and helping you make it beneficial for your audience, for your partner, for your family, to me, is something that I love to do. Mm. It's really important to me. And it doesn't matter. I have people who are Hasidic Jewish, right? I have people who are Chinese, Japanese, uh, Pacific Islander. To me, going into that cultural narrative, bringing it forward and making it beneficial for this, these people in this environment, in this day and age, is really healthy integration. Yep. What do you think about that? I mean, I 100% I agree. Because one of the other things that we do, other than yin yang, we talk a lot about fractal. Right. Confucius famously have said, you know, my listeners know that I use this line a lot. Self-mastery, family, country, world. He said that it is a fractal relationship. So, you know, we build what we are. Right. So if we want our family life to be well, it starts with us. And we want our company life to be well, it starts with us. So it's a fractal relationship. So I love that you are very um, intentional about mm -hmm cultivating this inner harmony first and foremost right articulating your desired wants and needs and then articulating to your partner and then then bring that to the rest the family unit the company unit and so on and so on so love it yeah definitely definitely thank you so much i use i use indra's net of jewels too you know what i mean and so that is another aspect of a fractal universe but only from a uh hindu pr perspective you know, what I mean, so we can we can go into very uh, every culture has the same fractal narrative, whether it's some Native American cultures they talk about dewdrops and how the whole world can be encapsulated in a dewdrop. And then you look into that dewdrop and see another dewdrop and see another one. It's really just kind of understanding that there are universes within universes, concepts within concepts in each one, no matter how small is worthy of our attention. Actually, on a side note, if you don't mind, how do you explain the complexity of something like that to <laughs> in, in a soundbite format? Because in my mind, it's 
if you get it, you get it. If you don't get it, then you know it's hard for me to even articulate that <laughs> phenomenon to you about fractal phenomenon. So how do you how do you go about it? Just out of curiosity. To be honest, I don't. I just know it, and so I use it. But you know, you can see colloquial narratives that um, exist in Western society, which is my favorite. Swipe the small stuff. Mm. Right. It's the same. It's the same thing. Right. You have to look at if you can look at the small, you'll see a reflection of the large. Mm -hmm. Right. And to me, every conversation that we have about the interpersonal dynamic is reflective of another area that also needs work. That's why it's so important to look at as a web. Right. Because mm -hmm. it's all interconnected. And I get people all the time who are like, I'm talking about the kitchen, but really what you're talking about is the constant upkeep of the relationship. Mm -hmm. It's not about the messy in, in the kitchen or in the bedroom or in the closet. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you do do the jump. Like, hey, yes. you, you're talking about this, but what you're talking about is the macro as well. Exactly. I like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that. That's awesome. <laughs> I like that. That's, a, that's awesome. You no, know, that's great. One of my one of my clients, I, I love them to death, and they said it's okay for me to use this one, this example. The the husband kept leaving stuff all over the house, right? And she's like, I, he won't pick it up, and there's always this, and there's always shoes, and there's always this, and there's always that. I said, what room in the house did he design? Nothing. I said, what paint did he pick out for the walls? None. What furniture did he buy? None. I said, maybe he's marking his territory. Maybe he wants people to know that he lives here and he's leaving unintentionally, subconsciously, or even repressively leaving little things that says, I'm here too. So why don't you put up some art that he likes that's reflective of his, who he is? Why don't you put up a room or something, an area that has his taste involved? an area for him to co uh, inhabit and occupy and feel comfortable with, right? Put a space for him in every room and see if it clears up. And it did, right? Because oftentimes what we're seeing is, is our perception, disrespect, uncleanliness. It's setting us off, triggering our thing. And we're not thinking deeper about the narrative, right? And I know 50 million men, who allow their wife to take care of this whole thing. And I also know 50 million men that leave their crap all over the house. So instead of thinking about this as a direct assault on your senses, think about, I wonder why he's doing that, right? I can tell you before I had this space, I left my stuff everywhere, right? And I can figure out why. I wouldn't make up my bed. I can't tell you why. My bed stays made up as you can see. Right. Every day, every morning made up because I love my space to look the way I want it. Give the person a space. Right. Which brings me to another aspect of my teaching, which is space, place, time, sacrifice. Space, place, time, sacrifice. If you can remember those four things, you'll see every element of the relationship in a fractal kind of space. Right. Before you go on, by the way, because you shared this with me before we started the podcast, what is the difference between space and place? Space is an environment. Place is a location. Mm -hmm. Okay. Can you, can you say more? This, yeah. So this room, the walls, the ceiling, 
the floor, these are places. This bed is placed in this in this place, right? It's placement. Space is the environment. It's the feeling. It's the I narrative, see. right? When you look at like Michel let Foucault. Me, let me let me articulate. I want to make sure I understand this. Otherwise, a place is the physical, the physicality. Space is the, is the intangible, the mood, the experience. Is that yeah? Yes, that's correct. Okay, awesome. Please continue. Space is usually associated with shelter, security, privacy. When a person wants a safe place, what they're looking for is shelter. You know, hard walls to keep the world out. In our primal brain, it's the cave, right? In our subprimal brain, it's the womb. Right. It's a thing that in, you know, that we are able to develop in. OK, the space is the ambiance. It's the way it makes a person feel right. Like our mother's house feels different than any other place. Right. Our ancestral home makes us feel different. It's not just the location. It is the environment that is created the way I feel in that space. So we want safe spaces that feel good, right? And so we always have to remember that space is a feeling, it's a mode, it's, a, it's a, just a way of being in that environment. Michel Foucault calls it heterotopic spaces, right? A heterotopic space is a space that helps us be who we need to be in that environment. It brings us out. We may be a different person just because the space feels good. I'm feeling extra sexy just looking at your space. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> right. It, yeah. it helps you do that. So when people uh -huh. step into the space, you know, they feel, you know, safe. they feel calm, they feel sexy, they feel turn on, they have these different things. They may have not felt that out in the hallway. They may have not felt that at work, but this helps transform a person because the space that is created mm -hmm. is conducive to that thing. Most people's bedrooms are not conducive to feeling sexy. It's not conducive to feeling intimate. You know what I mean? The focus of the room is a television that takes you into a different world, a different place. It doesn't reflect the, the, the sexual narrative that is there, right? And so they understand they have a place where you put the bed, a place where we sleep, right? The place, but we don't have a space that's conducive to having the intimate activities that we're looking for in there. Mm. Does that make sense? It does. And, and one particular uh, component of those four components that you share what, gave me an aha moment. Sacrifice. Okay. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Yeah. And then you had said earlier that rituals are required for a good life and a life that matter. So mm -hmm. say more about that. Why did you say that? Because the, that felt true for me. And then the specific point of it is the sacrifice component. Yes. Uh, we're skipping straight to the sacrifice. <laughs> yes. <What? laughs> are we skipping straight to the sacrifice? <laughs> I mean, you, no, no, no. I mean, you can go into your, yeah. Um, Let's see. Let's how how can we bridge that right off? Because I usually work up to it. Um, first of all, ritual is important. Period, because it breeds significance into whatever it is that we're doing. Really, the ritual around anything is really the process of 
imparting significance. Significance is important. It's so important that we give each individual one day a year where they can feel significant, their birthday, right? We say, this is a day where we come to you. We'll all gather. We'll all reverence you. We'll all revere you. We'll talk about the day you were born or the day we met. We'll reflect on how important you are to each and every one of us. But why can't we bring that same ritual into every aspect of our life? The same intentionality, right? Why can't we create rituals that uh, support narratives that are important to us, right? I love family dinners, the ritual, knowing that it's going to be there, knowing that when I show up, my dad's going to be sitting there, my mom's going to be sitting there, my sister's going to be there, my brother's going to be there. I love the ritual of it. Forget the meals, the ritual, right? It's the giving thanks. It's showing appreciation. It's the sacrifice of, I know you could be doing something else somewhere else with someone else, but you've made time for us because we are significant to you, Mm. right? That's the sacrifice element. So oftentimes when I'm talking to couples, I say, you have to acknowledge the other person's sacrifice so that they feel significant. Your husband's not watching the game. He's doing this thing with you. He's not at work. He's doing this thing with you. He's not doing some other thing that he wants or needs to do because you are so significant that you've taken precedent. And Mm. it's up to you to acknowledge the sacrifice, right? And they should be doing the same for you. You know, you're not out doing your thing, doing your exercise, doing your yoga, working your job, doing your thing. And he should acknowledge the sacrifice in that space. And so for me, when we do the space Thank you for creating this amazing environment, for lighting the candles, for for, uh, putting on the music, for doing this thing. You took time to do this intention, effort. Let me acknowledge and support from my down deep in my heart that you did this. Thank you. I appreciate it for you making time for me. Right. In your schedule, even though we're in this relationship and we may have been together 25 years, appreciation is important. Appreciation is recognition of the sacrifices that you've made to make this happen. Mm. Right? Space, place, time. Thank you for keeping paying the bills to keep the light on, the, the paying for the oil to make it make sure that this house is warm. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for taking care of the kids. Thank you for raising our children. Thank you for, for cooking this meal. Thank you for taking time to watch what I want to watch on television. (laughs) That's always a good Mm -hmm. one Mm because I know you don't like my program and you could be doing something else, Mm -hmm. but you're sitting here with me. Thank you. That's what the sacrifice is really for is to really remind people to appreciate their partner for the things that we do and not take them for granted. Yeah. Yeah. Space for gratitude is so important. Yeah. Because after a little while, (laughs) Huh? space right space for gratitude <laughs> it's true because after a while when two people are familiar with each other it's so easy to take the gift of presence of sacrifice of time of space for mm. granted right of course you know orpheus ck they're gonna be here 
Mm-hmm. So just be a jerk. <laughs> right. They'll forgive right. me tomorrow, right? We'll, we won't go to bed mad. You know, that's taking it for granted that that person will wake up in the morning, make it home from work. I mean, you know, not to bring it down, but, you know, there's a lot of people who didn't get a chance to have that conversation with their partner when they went on 9-11 to that building. But if you make a ritual of gratitude, appreciation, acknowledgement, right, every day you feel comfortable. Every morning for 25 years, I've got up to watch my wife get dressed in the morning before she goes to work. Mm-hmm. Every morning for 25 years, I at least open my eyes to watch her walk around. Every night, or as much as I can, before I go to sleep, I want to see my wife. Whether she's mad at me, upset with me, loving me, not loving me, I want to see her face. Mm-hmm. Because one morning I won't. Or one afternoon, I won't. And mm-hmm. so I make a ritual and I show her. I appreciate her. I make a comment. I say, good morning or hi, or you looking good or whatever it is to say something before she walks out the door. Just to acknowledge. Sometimes you have to acknowledge. And now I'll give you uh, where, I got, where I got that from. I actually got that from the Tao of Pooh. Mm. Right? And in the book, Piglet says, hey, Pooh. And Pooh says, yes, Piglet. He said, I just wanted to know that I exist. Mm. Right? The acknowledgement of my existence is sometimes enough. And so just waking up and just saying good morning. Hello. Hi. I see you. I hear you. Thank you. Mm. Is enough. On that, on, on that note, uh, recently I came across a really interesting um, internet meme that just summarize what we just talked about is mm-hmm. where whenever you speak to someone imagine this is the last conversation that you have with this person yep. and of course nothing but kindness and the most compassion and generosity comes out versus mm-hmm. you know you 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 whatever so mm-hmm. yeah that is absolutely important i like the the i like the framework of space place time sacrifice uh, as a as a process for that, right? Mm. Because a lot of times people are very analytical and they need to be able to hit steps, right? Making time. Time is made, it's created, it's fabricated. You make it, you don't get it, right? You have to make it, you have to carve it out. So take time to carve it out for your partner. How much of this pie have you carved out for your partner? How much have you carved out for your relationship? How much have you carved out for your kids? And how, what is the process for devoting for how much time you create for each person? Right? Because it's really going to be what you perceive as being most significant. And if you take your wife for granted, if you take your husband for granted, that sliver is going to be smaller and smaller because you think you can make it up later. One day there's not going to be a later. So I want to ask you a question about this line between adaptive and maladaptive regarding honoring your desire. Because whatever we focus on expands. So if I focus on my desire, in my mind, right, it's going to expand more and more desire, which is fine. No problem there. However, uh, I guess the concern that I have is become this hungry ghost. You know, I'm always mm-hmm. grasping for 
you know, desire. <laughs> oh, if I have this much money, oh, 10x that, and I'll have more and more. Yeah, it's gonna be better, right? Yeah, whatever house or the toy or the accolades or the whoever, right? So for right. you, since you're teaching people to get familiar with their authentic desire, what for you do you teach them the line between adaptive and maladaptive of their desire? Yeah. Yeah. This is a difficult one um, because first we have to have a uh, an idea of what desire is. And I take the Sanskrit word kama as in Kama Sutra. Kama means desire, but it's unique in that in Hindu culture, desire kind of has this understanding of coming from a place of completeness, longing to feel completed. You know, there's just like when you feel hungry, there's a hole and I want to fill it so I can feel whole and happy and complete, right? You, it comes from a place of striving for equilibrium, just enough to get balance, right? And so to keep your desire from getting out of control, think, am I satiated at this moment? Did I have enough? Did I receive what I needed? And that's important. When we go past that point of need, it's kind of like stuffing yourself. Eventually, you feel bad. You get sick. It's no longer conducive. It doesn't feel good anymore. We have to recognize the cycle that there's going to be emptiness and that there's going to be a desire to strive for equilibrium or wholeness. And that is what we call desire. And then we're going to fill that space of emptiness. And then we're going to feel content. And we're going to enjoy it and we're going to relish it and then we're going to wait for the process to happen again if you force it right if you force the thing if you overwhelm yourself if you push too hard it will break you will feel sick you will not be happy with it anymore mm. so we have to go into the space of just recognizing the cycle and where we are in it yeah, going back to, again, the core of what I'm hearing all of this is this awareness, somatic awareness, right? just awareness, intellectual awareness, emotional awareness, spiritual awareness, just awareness always comes back to that. Is that accurate? That's correct. Yeah. That is correct. In understanding, you know, there are people who have issues, uh, kind of a dysmorphia around their desires, where they're receiving lots of attention, lots of care, lots of sex, lots of intimacy, but because it's dysmorphic, because they can't see it in its fullness, they feel that they, they want more than they need, right? They crave hunger long, just like people who are just, you know, have eating disorders. They're overfilling or purging, right? Recognizing that behavior in and of itself can sometimes help people rein it in okay so what's an example of kind of a purging in the sexual space like when i go celibate i'm gonna go celibate i won't i'm gonna reduce all sex nothing why because i can't achieve a healthy equilibrium mm. right and then what does that force me to do now i'm starving so i overeat right or so i oversex or overindulge in my desire Right. And then I have to purge again. Right. Or there's some people who just continue. They, they just 
can't they go eat and they consume and they consume and they consume and they consume hungry ghosts right it's never enough it's never enough it's never enough until they're sick and they kind of get this i'm going to say psychosexual or psycho uh or psychic uh, obesity what does that mean again psychosexual and psychic obesity I yeah, I, psychosexual is the emotion, the gratification that we get from the thought of doing the thing, from from watching, looking, seeing. It's the psychological gratification, and I think that there's a type of psychic obesity that people can get where they can't get enough, they can't stop seeing enough, like people who have porn addiction, mm. right? They overindulge in the porn. Right. There's people who have fetishes where they overindulge in the fetish. There's people who want sex so much that they drain their partner. Mm. Right. They're not taking time to savor the meal. They're not taking time to deeply and on all levels appreciate what it is that they're receiving. Creating a ritual around sex, sexuality, intimacy, relationships right, really can help a person savor what it is that they're receiving, right? A process of gratitude can be a part of your thing, right? Recognizing a person's sacrifice can be a part of the thing. You know, paying respect to the space, maybe like burning sage to say, you know, let me respect the space. Let me, you know, uh, let me look at the physical location and make sure it's up to, to par or whatever it is. Really appreciating the colors in the room, the look on your partner's face. All of that can be something to help us rein in our desires to make sure it's healthy and beneficial to both us and our partner. Yeah. Using the meal analogy again, it's not to just, hey, let me wolf it down in three seconds as quickly as I can versus mm. actually chewing it and, and savor it and then, you know, looking at it and then smell it and then articulate, you know, maybe even discuss it if you want to. There's a way to deepen that experience altogether. Yeah. Yes, that is absolutely correct. And if you think about how we appreciate our partners in those moments, this is why I say sex is the way with which we satiate our hungers and desires or the hungers and desires of our partner. So when you go into that space and you're satiating, it's taste, touch, sound, right? It's vision, look at them, feel them, taste them, right? Hear them, appreciate all of it. Take your time. For me, sex is everything that happens outside of intercourse. Right, intercourse meaning the manip intentional manipulation of uh, the erotic areas for the sole purpose of uh, orgasm. Everything else is sex, mm. right? If you think about it like that, you can take a person more in in their totality and realize that oftentimes when someone's saying sex with you, what they're saying is hand holding, eye gazing, soft touches, warm hugs. Uh, kissing, hair stroking, caressing. When you think about all that is sex and you can appreciate that in that space, you'll realize that people want to do it with you more and more often because they're being engaged with in a way that they've not been in a long time or if not ever, right? What are your thoughts about that? And also the spaciousness that you provide. Mm. 
right? So it's not so they can be however shape or form or whatever the way they are, characters and archetypes, and then the space you provide. It's just right. you know they have that freedom, right? That finally yeah. someone's able to receive me as the totality that I am. Mm-hmm. So on exactly. that note, I want to ask you a question because you had made a point of the partner of this person doing this this thing, right? Has now the the opportunity to cultivate compassion, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, so do you have any mm, methods, tactics as a way to cultivate one's own compassion towards another human being? Yeah, um, I think it revolves around learning how to receive. Mm-hmm. Most people don't know how to receive that intention receive that attention to be able to be heard and seen in their fullness a lot of times um clients will say i'm not used to being seen and you see me it's uncomfortable right because i'm not used to being fully heard fully fully seen fully watched fully engaged with and this is a lot of attention so how do we create a process where you can be comfortable with being seen Right. One of the unique things that bondage provides is an opportunity for a person to step back and just receive. Mm. I like to kind of use this analogy that nobody likes bondage. Nobody likes financial, emotional, psychological bondage. Right. But you'll be tied up because what you want to be is the center of a process. You want someone to pay attention to you, work on you, and work. your only job is to sit back and just to be in a space of allowing, be in a space of permission, right? And allow yourself to feel the rope going around your body, to feel the hands and the breath on your neck, to be able to be in a non, uh, uh, in a space is non-exploitive. Right, where someone's not just trying to use you as a means to an end to just feel your body in the moment. And then to sit back and just receive the touch, the love, the hug, the affection. To be able to create your own intentions and have someone work within those parameters. To me, when you're in that space and you learn how to receive fully, right? You learn how to give fully, right? So for me, it's really important for both partners. Well, it doesn't matter if you're dominant or submissive or you, you have a, issues, you have to learn how to receive. And then you have to learn how to submit, to give yourself over to the space fully, to let go of whatever's holding you back and to drop deeply into that space of reception, right? Because both partners are self and other. I'm both the provider and the receiver. So I have to know have know how to navigate both spaces. I want, I want you to go a little deeper there because you you ran by those powerful concepts very quickly. Right? <laughs> okay. You have to learn both to give and to receive right away. So like, why do they have to? And, right, so, so, that, so that way they can go deeper into who they are and also the unions of what's possible. So say a little bit more about that. Contextualize it for us. Yes, yes. Alan Watts has this idea that people can't take care of themselves because what the self needs is not tangible. 
it's it's tenderness, compassion, love, affection, right? That's what we need from other, right? And so we have to learn how to receive that because most of us aren't used to it. We're used to uh, affection in the form of a gift or, you know, we're used to receiving dinner, goods, services, but not true tenderness. We're not used to being seen and cared for, right? We're used to trying to take care of our body. You know, I give myself a facial, I give myself time at the gym. We think that's taking care of ourselves, but we need other people to just be able to listen and take time, be patient, hold us, those things. But when you don't have it for a long time, you forget how to receive it. It becomes uncomfortable. You know what I mean? You, you resist, you push away. You're like, oh, this, I need this to be over. This doesn't feel good anymore. Right. I'm used to the space of resignation. It's, yeah. it's not totally foreign to me. Yeah. Now I have to create a new space to even receive this. As a, right. Yeah. And another Taoist idea, doing versus being. Another Buddhist saying, doing versus being, right? We're used to doing affection, not being affectionate, right? We're used to doing acts of kindness, not being kind, right? So again, we're not used to people being there for us and being with us and being in this. We're used to doing, acting on each other, right? I'm going to put, you know, you're going to lay back. I'm going to kiss you. I'm going to get your body moist. I'm going to get you in. I'm going to penetrate you. I'm going to repeat and I'm going to jump on you. And then we're going to be done. And then we're going to do the cleaning up thing. And then we're going to go to sleep. And then we're going to go back. And that's fine. But we're not being together. Mm. We're doing a thing to each other. We're not being together. And we forget how to be with each other. Right? So again, you have to be both self and other. There's things that I want to provide for my partner because it's deeply connected to my sexuality, mm. right? I want to be someone's other, but I want to have people engage with myself, my true being. I want them to touch my heart and my soul and my passions. I want them to feel me, not just my body. Mm. It's time to reintegrate into a relationship. I love that. Mm. Thanks for sharing that. And what's Thank possible you. in that space? Uh, <laughs> being seen and, you know, really connecting. Because now we're really talking about the more spiritual aspect of it. Not just as uh, using your words, the sensations of the body. Mm -hmm. Not just the emotionality connection of know one another but now it's more it's even deeper than that so even more subtle than that can you describe that space a little bit more the sacred space of having that spiritual connection two spirits coming together through the sacred path of sex mm. you know the the i want to use a word that i know we throw around arbitrarily all the time which is spiritual really spiritual is two words spirit ritual right it is the process that we've created to help bring forth and work with the intangible nature of who we are 
the quintessential essence of who we are as a person existing in the world. And so for me, when we create a spirit ritual, it's about the intention. What are we focused on? Is this about bodies or is this about being close to you, merging with you, making deep expressions to touch something in you that is longing to be touched, needing to be have unification, something that's needing integration. And so when we go into that space, we're talking about creating a spirit ritual that and the conduit that we're going to use or the process that we're going to use is our bodies. Right? It's going to be both a physical merging and a psychosexual merging. Right? It's about a full body prayer. Right? It's about the bringing forth the sacrifices that we made to be in this moment together. All those go onto the altar of our relationship. All of those are accepted, appreciated, and revered by both people. Here's another thing, and maybe some people think this is blasphemy, but this is my opinion. Every human being wants to be both the worshiper and the worshiped. They want to reverence others and be reverenced. And so I need to ask my partner, how can I best reverence you? How can I show my appreciation of you? Do I start at your feet and just appreciate every little curve, every little subtle nuance? Is it about kissing you from here to there? Is it about holding you deeply and richly? What's going to help you cultivate that spiritual space in this moment so I can give you the reverence that you're looking for? Mm. Right? That's the hallmark of like the spiritual sexuality is bringing, co-opting this person into the releasing of this soul to bring something forth from them that they haven't even seen in a long time. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, it's moving from, as you said, the physical, the sensational to the cycle, sexual to the devotional, right? What you just said, that question in itself leads to the devotional connection. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And there's, there's meditation involved. Like this can be a deep meditation. It doesn't have to just be the physical undulations of our, of our bodies. Right? Like I like to look at it like this, abbreviate Buddhism, abbreviate the word Buddhism. Buddha. What do you No Buddhism. B. If you were B, you B D S M. I see. Oh, <laughs> I would never look at that word ever the same again. That's too funny. Right? See, the word didn't change. My perspective of the word changed. How I interact with the subject matter changes as a result of how I see the word, right? And then the similarities develop because of my frame, how I saw the same pictures through a new frame of mind, right? And so BDSM changed into a spirit ritual. You know, it becomes a way with which I connect deeply and richly with the people in my life, right? It's taking into account that in this space, that which arises of itself is real and true in the moment and is worthy of respect and attention, 
right? That is the Buddha nature, right? That is the essence of BDSM to me now, right? And so I move into this space of like, what's my expression? And I'm not going to be limited by the definition that's been provided to me. I'm going to move forward richly and fully. I'm going to embrace my self-expression. I'm going to dive deep into my shadow and then question my resistance. Question my, why don't I feel like I should have everything I want? What's hindering me from asking for what I need and desire? What is the fear around this exploration? Right? Actually, on that note, if you don't mind, traditionally, well, religion in general, uh, say stay away from sexuality. Mm. So why do you think, because I'm actually in agreement with you. There is not one path to one's own enlightenment and connection with the divine and so forth, right? So I'm, I'm right there. However, I'm always curious, like, why do religions basically say no to desires? They know to the most primal aspect of human species, the continuation of human species. Like they say no to that. So as a, as a, as a coach's coach, as a teacher, as an educator, how would you respond to that inquiry? Yeah. I, to, to, to colloquially address the issue, I don't think that most religions say stay away from sex. What they say is don't eat, the dessert first. <laughs> you know what I mean? Don't skip the process of the spirit, deep and meaningful spiritual connection, you know, and go straight. I love having forward. dessert first, though. Right. <laughs> I know you do, <laughs> right? But they've created an outline for a safe, holistic, healthy way of doing it. And what they think in most, in most religions, as I've studied them, the process is around mutual respect, meeting, connecting, talking desiring, creating uh, commitments, right? Between you, the source of your spirit, right? The family, right? The friendship, the society, the establishment, making sure that you have people who are supporting your union and then moving into a place of exploration, into sexual, emotional exploration. Most Religions don't tell you what you can't do within the sanctity of your relationship. What happens for us in most cases is that we are looking to skip the process. We're looking to go outside of it. We don't want to uh, hold our, you know, wait for the meeting the right person. We want the the chips and the dips and the the candy now, right? Right. Uh, so for me. Uh, I understand that when people have this confluence, what they're looking for is a reason or an excuse to be able to go straight for it now. And whether I support it or don't is not really the issue. The thing is, is are you worried about not making the commitment? Let's talk about that. Are you willing to not go through the process? Let's talk about that. What's wrong with the process? What do you disagree with? Let's talk about that, right? Why do you want to skip through? Right. Maybe the society that you live in right now is not built to go through these processes or you don't have the access to to that type of thing. Maybe you don't want to be trapped by relationships. I don't know. But you have to figure it out. Right. We have to understand our attachments 
And I think that's the difference between like Buddhism as I as I interpret it and come into this kind of Afro Zen space is it's not about just letting go of all your attachments. It's acknowledging what is this connected to? Mm. What is this? And there are some attachments that I have to have in order to exist in this Western society. And understanding that there's suffering associated with it and the conscious acceptance of it, right? And so when we look at religion, religion is asking you to do the same thing. There are consequences to your actions. This is the best process that we have. If you deviate from it, we can't be responsible for that, right? But it's up to you. Each person has to live their own life. That's why we were given choice. Mm. To choose this path or to deviate from it. I love that. Do you mind if we uh, ask one more deep question and we'll complete? As a sure. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much. Time flies. That's almost two yeah. hours. For that. <laughs> so let's talk about the, the most subtle, the energetic aspect of it, because we, we touched upon it, but we didn't really dive deeper into it. Um, many say that the sexual energy is the most potent energy. This is the root chakra, right? What is the relationship between one's creative potential to one's sexual energy a la root chakra? Mm. Mm. Okay. Is that better? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the best I can with this one. Um, <laughs> I'm, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to do this because I have a very different perspective on root chakras versus crown chakras. Um, in the normal world, right, in our normal Western society, the way relationship works is root chakra and you move it up into like the Dantian area and you start going with like, let's say courage. Let's just say the, 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 the more Japanese Zen uh, feeling of it. Then you move up into like the heart chakras. Then you move up into the throat chakras. Then you move so on and so forth. That's how it goes. We lead with libido. I'm turned on by that girl. That's your root chakra. I want to have sex. I, I, I'm feeling depleted in this area. I need There's energy I need to release. We lead with libido. Then we have the courage to start capitalizing on the emotional connection that I felt during that sexual engagement. And I go over and talk to that person and say, I would like to have more. I'm starting to envision, right? Envision a life together. And possibly it looks like this a higher purpose. That's great. But in BDSM, it works a little different. I have this vision of what my life and relationship is going to look like, this higher purpose. And I've thought about it. And I want to start talking about it. And I really feel passionately about it. And I'm going to have the courage to live courageously. Mm. Right? And then once I have the courage to go into that space, we can make it sexual. And we can have those roots that go deeper and more and farther because I'm really serving a higher purpose. Most people don't know how to access their crown chakra, their higher purpose, because they're so rooted in one way of doing it. Right. So when you think about you have the vision. Right. You bring it into your mind and you rationalize it. 
you start talking about it. You follow your passion. You develop the courage to live a lifestyle that is congruent with your wants, needs, and desires. And then you consummate it. You develop roots. That's much more important to me. That's the process that I teach because I think it's more holistic, more spiritual, and it serves a higher purpose because you've taken the time to really think about how sex is used as a tool to creatively reinforce or consummate the the, the roles in the relationship that you have. Mm. Right? Not jumping straight in. It's not being dictated by libido. Right? That's there. But all those other things need to be developed so that you can have that healthy relationship. You have the courage to ask for what you're passionate about. Right? Let's not just move mindlessly, guided by impulse, and then try to capitalize on those impulses and then move it up into your mind. Right? The, the metaphor, the, the image that comes to my mind is imagine a vehicle. Uh, mm -hmm. Our body is is like a you know motor vehicle. You don't mm -hmm. leave with your engine. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you leave with the driver, the vision, yeah. you know, the control of you know the, the acuity of the senses. Mm -hmm. Then you you know use the engine to take you wherever you want to go. Versus you just leave with your engine and the driver is in the back and trying to trying to hold on for dear life. <laughs> Right. And, and, and notice that all these parts have to be working together to go to the next space. Right. And this is why when we do the test, most people, um, most people's highest archetype is the magician. Because everybody has this really high ideal of what things should be like, sex should be like, relationships should be like, business should be like. Right. But it needs to be developed a little bit more to make sure that we say, what is the higher purpose? Like, what is really the noble warrior aspiring to be? How is it going to change lives? Right? How is it going to affect the future? How are you going to change the world? That's that highest power, right? And then you start structuring and formatting in your mind. Then you started talking about it. Because it, it's really important for you to be able to develop the language to help you express the vision that you see, right? And then other people, it touches them in their heart. It touches just the way it touches you in your heart. And you had the courage to make the first phone call to get your first guest to do your first interview. And then you moved into that creative space that you made, right? Mm. Why is X not the same way? Thank you for that. So let's talk about teachers. Yes. In this space, uh, conscious sexuality teachers. You know, I've been looking, haven't found a lot. You know, you and John Wyland name came up, right? Because of trusted friends. They're like, oh yeah, you should talk to Orpheus Black, <laughs> right? So from this space of teaching this, what do you think are the criteria for finding the right teacher as a as a professional, as a practitioner, as someone who's deep in this space? Where mm. do you use? Do you recommend people to? look for when they look for good teachers? What I think is most important is that that person has success in the areas that they're teaching, right? It, you wouldn't go for business advice to a person who doesn't have a, who's never had a business, right? You don't want to learn how to manage people from a person who doesn't manage people. 
if a person doesn't have successful relationships and you're going for, to them for relationship advice, then there's a problem, right? So that's really important. Um, I also think that you have to find somebody who has a unique and or nuanced way of communicating that information that is in line with your way of hearing and receiving and learning, right? I'm very esoteric, I'm very philosophical, right? I'm very spiritual. Some people that doesn't land for them and that's okay, <laughs> right? And that's okay for them. You know, I mean, if you need like to be doing a thing, I have little of that. If you need to learn how to be and exist in a way that is congruent with your wants, needs, and desires, then I'm your person. So for me, it's really important to make sure that the teacher is able to teach you in a way that is congruent with how you learn, right? And lastly, and this is just, I think, most important, understand the difference between a coach and a cheerleader, mm. right? Someone who's going to just go, yay, you can do it. Yay, you can do it. And someone who's going to inspire, lead, and motivate you to being the best that you can, who's going to challenge you and really push you in a way to make you better than who you are. To me, that's what a coach does. They take natural, raw talent and desire and take you to a place that you didn't know that you could reach. They help you reach your potential. To me, um, that's what I like to do. I played football, you know, I've done martial arts, I've boxed, I know coaches, I've sold, you know, I mean, uh, everything from airy cameras, uh, cinema cameras to giant screen TVs. I know sales coaches. I am a coach's coach. That's what I desire to be, but I will push you. You know, I will stretch you. I will make sure I ask the best of you. And to me, that's what's most important in a coach. I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Rapid fire questions. What books do you gift uh, most? My book. <laughs> Your book? Yeah. Okay. My book. So, you know, I mean, because, you know, most people don't want to understand submission as a way of life. They don't, they, the idea of submitting in any way, shape, form, or fashion terrorizes people until they understand that it's just giving yourself over to your own wants, your own needs, and your own desires. Love right? it. Love it. What's one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've made? Could be money, time, energy, et cetera. My children. Mm. Most best investment I've ever made. Learn more from my kids than I learn from anybody else in the world. Mm. When one teaches to learn, right? What's an unusual habit or absurd thing that you love? Um, studying what my partners love to study. Mm. I read all the books that every one of my I'm poly, and so I have uh, potential. I have partners who are doc have doctorates and master's degrees and so i read everything that they've ever read and i love it it helps me grow as a human being mm. lastly what's something that everyone should know about sex but almost no one talk about it? respect is the most important thing that anybody will ever have or everybody needs in order to have a good sex life. If you don't respect the person you're with, you'll never have good sex. If they don't respect you, mm. you'll never have good sex. And if you don't, even if they do respect you, 
but you don't feel that way, right? It doesn't work. Respect has to exist in the space and we have to pay respect. We have to receive respect. We have to give respect. We have to embrace respect and understanding that there's two types of respect. The one is I respect your position. Two is I respect you as a person. A lot of people conflate the two, right? It's like, I respect you as a husband, but not as a person, or I respect you as a wife, but not as a human being, right? That's when begrudging resistance comes up into sexuality. You have to have both areas. It's not only do I have to be a great husband and pay tribute and honor to my position that I hold, but I also have to be a good human being and show up fully in my masculine, fully in my healthy human, uh, fully in my spirituality with my partner in order to develop the type of personal respect that is essential to good sex. Hmm. We didn't talk about poly. <laughs> I'm very tempted. But I, don't want to open it. I got I want... time. What do you want to do? Yeah. Oh, okay. So on that note, right? <laughs> I was going to wrap, but I, I, you know, it's so tempting. <laughs> to me, it's diff It's challenging enough to okay. interact with a human being, you know, because I change, this other person changes over time, right? Mm -hmm. And then it's, it takes communication and commitment in order to create a simpatical dance, you know, that, that works together. Polly is like the NFL, the professional grade, because now you're not just interacting with yourself with another person, maybe with kids, but now you're like multiple people. There's a lot of permutations and I'm just like, oh my gosh, that sounds like a lot of work. You know what, like you, you know, what? it's never work when you enjoy what you're doing, you know what I mean? And, or who you're doing, <laughs> but it's never work, right? And so people have to get out of this idea of poly being work. Really what we're talking about is most people want to be in a fixed position because that position that they're in is most comfortable with them. They don't want to have to change, alter, or grow in any way, shape, form, or fashion. So when you're with your, say, wife in this one way, we're really scared to try and be something else with someone else because my, my wife might go, well, you'd never do that with me, or you're never like that with me. Why are you changing for her, right? And my wife may like say, I have a little fear around you changing because you might like being that person better, not being with her better, but being this person that you are with her better, right? So some of these fears around how we develop in different spaces with different people, right? Each partner creates a different environment, which brings out the best or different aspects of who we are. And I might, I, I love who I am with one partner. And I love who I am with this other partner. And I love who I am with this other partner. And if I had to learn how to be flexible, to be able to show up for many different people in many different ways. Mm. If you can't do that, poly will become work because you're working to keep yourself locked in that same paradigm <laughs> that you were in before. Uh, good coaching. Thank you. <laughs> 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 it looks like you have so much you want to say, man. <laughs> uh, hey, Orpheus, I really, really thank you for the way that you show up. Um, 
and the work that you do, uh, I, I see why my friends are really excited that we're having a conversation on Noble Warrior. The ethos of your come from place is purpose, commitment, principles, and then from that space lead the root chakra, you know, or, you know, and, right. and then with the intention of first and foremost, know thyself, what is right. it that you want? What is it that you need and learn the skills necessary to communicate that with your lovers and then as a way to cultivate and also honor each other. Right. As spiritual beings living a human life. So just so, so appreciate you sharing your wisdom, your tactics, your questions, and also your sense of humor. I, I felt like I was able to <laughs> go wherever and you're able to get what I'm trying to do. It's all good. This is one of my favorite interviews. I got to be honest, you do a great job. You do a great job. And I appreciate the way you showed up in this in this conversation. I, I, I do probably three interviews, uh, four interviews a month, right? And this is by far one of the best I've ever had. No, oh, thank you. I've received that. Thank you, Orpheus. Uh, for those of you who are watching, who wants to have Orpheus is your your sexual oracles, you know, being your coach, uh, go to OrpheusBlack.com. He has this program from the ballroom yeah. to the bedroom. Go check it out, uh, such that you can be powerful in the way you articulate your desires, even in the bedroom. Sounds good. Thank you for pitching that. <laughs> you did a great job. <laughs> Thanks, Orpheus. I look, to, I look forward to doing this again.